I think there's a moment, or there was certainly a moment for me in this business, and you can roughly split it right down the middle in terms of like the first five years and then the next five years. The first five years of the business, so it was very much that like tinkering, experimentation, figure it out, and then a big old phase of like, don't die. And then somewhere at like the five, six year mark, it became quite obvious that like this thing wasn't gonna die. Like we built a business that worked. Mm-hmm. And like all of my like fears went from being the fear of this thing imploding to the fear of us not necessarily being able to realize its full potential. Right. It's like it went from like, oh, this thing's gonna run out of money or this thing's gonna die or like whatever, to like, oh crap, we have this such huge opportunity. How do we make sure that we play all the cards perfectly right to make sure that we can be the way that every software company in the world? We stand today. The business method the business with method. a shadow. The business method. The business method podcast. The business method podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Entrepreneurs' systems, methods, tools, and tactics. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, people of all ages, I'm your host, Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast, a podcast featuring over 500 episodes of entrepreneurs and high-performance experts dissecting their different methods, tools, and strategies so we can apply them to our businesses and lives. We've been fortunate enough to interview some of the leading experts in business and performance today. The billionaire CEO of Priceline, Jeff Hoffman, the CEO of Chipotle, Monty Moran, world's top big wave surfer, Laird Hamilton, the first black woman to build a billion dollar company, Janet Halroyd, world's top investment expert, Jim Rogers, and the list goes on and on. All of these guests you can find on the podcast backlog using Apple, Spotify, YouTube, Google, and any podcast app you prefer. Also, you guys, have you started listening to our micro high performance episodes yet? We've taken the most powerful tips and tricks from over 400 interviews that our guests have shared on how to optimize their own personal performance, and we've made them into digestible micro-podcast episodes that are just 2 to 10 minutes long. We publish these on Monday and Friday each week, and those episodes are labeled as HP number 123456 and so on. Those episodes are live now, and they're designed for you to consume some quick, high-quality content while you only have a few minutes to spare. So be sure to subscribe to the Business Method Podcast on your favorite app so you can get those delivered as soon as they're live. And now, let's hop into today's episode. The Business Method. Hey listeners, real quick before we get started, I wanted to tell you about our trips and adventures for entrepreneurs. We have live events in different locations around the world, luxury trips to the Caribbean, adventurous trips to knock off your bucket list, and of course some private business events as well. If you're an entrepreneur, we'd love to have you join us. Make sure to subscribe to our newsletter at thebusinessmethod.com to stay updated. And for those established entrepreneurs out there that want to be involved in a community that is curated specifically for seasoned business minds, then we have a group for you. Inside this group, we have private live events in different locations around the world specifically for our members. We get those members in a place where they can connect, collaborate, and grow their companies faster just by being around one another. We also organize private podcast viewings and Q&A sessions with some of the world's top entrepreneurs like Jim Rogers, Alex Hermosi, the CEO of Chipotle, the marketing mind behind GoPro. And as a member of our group, you'll get to hop on calls with our podcast guests regularly to ask them any questions you want. And the last benefit is access to private world-class masterminds that are specifically curated for whatever challenges you're going through at the time. Our purpose with this private community is to help you expand your network, connect with some of the brightest minds in business today, and help one another overcome business challenges faster. You can learn more about our community at thebusinessmethod.com. Remember, subscribe to stay updated. And now, let's hop into today's show. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Listeners, the CEO and founder of Paddle.com is on the mic today, and he is going to share his story of building a $1.4 billion SaaS company before the age of 30. At the age of 12, Christian taught himself how to code and started building a software company. By the age of 16, he dropped out of high school and scaled his invoicing software business to $4 million annual reoccurring revenue. As a result, he ran into a lot of tax issues. Christian then decided to start a software company to solve these problems after being told he would have to build it himself to find a solution. So Christian founded Paddle.com. Paddle became a payments infrastructure for SaaS businesses, and he grew Paddle into a $1.4 billion company before the age of 30, 
growing 175% year over year. Paddle recently hit the unicorn level by raising $200 million. It has attracted developers with over a billion in volume and integrates Alipay, Google Pay, and Ideal. Empowering software companies to sell and grow globally. In 2016, Christian was named one of Forbes 30 under 30, and he's on the podcast to share how he did it today. Christian, welcome to the show, my friend. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on the show. I'm uh, really flattered to have you on our series. I don't know if you know or not, but we're interviewing 100 people that have built billion-dollar companies. And while there's not a lot of you guys out there, uh, fortunately, you're easier to get a hold of these days with Zoom and the internet and everything. So I don't have to come to London and hang out with you. <laughs> yeah, but you're ba- you're in London now, but you're telling me that you've got a lot of travel coming up and uh, you spend most of your time on a plane and get to come home to London every now and then to kind of relax and decompress, right? Yeah, I think I've been in London for like four days in June so far. And I think that's about the total I have tonight and then I, I fly out again tomorrow. So yeah, yeah, it's been a it's been a busy, busy few months. Yeah, it makes sense. Well, we want to get into kind of the timeline, Christian, of your story, because it's quite fascinating. And I know, I think in 2016, you hit uh, Forbes 30 under 30. Just curious, how old are you now? I am 28 as of last week. Okay. Well, happy birthday. My birthday was Saturday, actually. So we're both uh, June babies. Yeah, thanks. So you started, I guess, was it the age of 12 or 14 when you started building a business online? Sort of. I taught myself how to code when I was pretty young. So sort of found this thing called the internet when I was like 12, 13. Started, Mm -hmm. I had like, I got, I begged my parents to buy me sort of like one of those like books on HTML and it was like this thick and, <laughs> um, and like, I kind of like religiously went through it and started building websites for people in the town that I grew up in. So like small businesses, like local restaurants, sort of whatever it was, if I noticed that they didn't have like a website on the menu, I'd go kind of door to door almost and sort of try and sell them a website. And so I started doing that probably when I was like 13 ish. Mm-hmm. And kind of built a nice little business, sort of like building websites extremely cheaply as a 13-year-old in the, the town that I grew up in. And like the venture into software was at some point or another, I can't remember exactly how it went down, but one of those sort of people that I was building a website for asked me for an invoice. And I was like, 13, 14, I was like, I don't know what invoice is. So I went home and Googled like, what is an invoice? Nice. Um, and all of this stuff came up like QuickBooks and Zero and, and sort of all that. And it was like 10 bucks a month or something for the software. And me being self-taught software person was just like, oh, I, I, why am I gonna pay 10 bucks a month? I can build it. So started building software instead of just websites, built this invoicing product specifically for kind of freelancers. So it did like invoicing, but also did like time tracking and and things like that. And fell in love with building a product as opposed to like transcribing another menu or whatever it was that I was doing. And sort of realized then that I wasn't making this sort of like pocket money anymore, kind of making people websites. So started selling the invoicing software. And that was sort of as part of the intro kind of mentioned over about a 20, I want to say 24 month period, Grew mm-hmm. from like zero to about $4 million in revenue. Wow. That's incredible. So at 13, you know, most kids are whatever they're doing, playing in the woods, hanging out with their friends, playing sports. What do you, what do you think made, makes you different to think about, Hey, I really want to code. Like most children aren't thinking about that. Right. So what was it for you that, that attracted you I, to it? Yeah. I'm not a hundred percent sure. I was always like really fascinated with how like stuff works. Like I was always the kid who would get given, I don't know, like grandparents old VCR player. And I would just like take the thing apart and sort of was just fascinated with how things were built and how they came together. And I think kind of, I was probably part of that like crossover generation where still spent a good chunk of my childhood playing outside, but then also lots of people got into video games. Yeah. And I got into video games a little bit, but like my initial thing with video games is like, how does this work? So I initially wanted to start like creating games and that was really difficult. So like the next best thing was like, how do I build a website? Cause it was this thing on the computer that I could kind of play with and you could kind of write some code and, and make it do something. So I kind of just fell into it that way, but I've always been this kind of, I was always this like curious kid 
who whenever I was given anything, I immediately wanted to like much to the, the this dismay of my parents just wanted to take it apart. Mm-hmm. Incredible. Yeah. Uh, was there more? Well, no, it was just, so that was kind of, I did try and make games initially. Uh, and I would sort of, I made a guy, you could get these like uh, kind of like tutorials where you would make a game or something, but you could d- download like the sample game and then you could like customize it. So probably before I started making websites for people, I would start they, getting those. I would kind of customize the game. I would put it on like a USB stick or something. Yeah. And then I would take it into school because sort of like the computers at school were like so locked down that you couldn't play and you couldn't go on like whatever the website was and play any games on them. So I would basically like hand out these flash drives of games that I'd made at school. Should have charged people for them because I, I imagine there was a, a willing, a willing buying audience there. But kind of then sort of my interest shifted more towards like, how do I actually solve a problem with this thing? I'm really into building stuff, but how do I solve a problem? And that was initially kind of the websites for people. And then it was this invoicing software that I was like the main customer of initially. Right. Did you ever get caught handing out the USB and getting got in trouble? Oh, I got in tons of trouble for like <laughs> doing like stupid stuff on computers at school. Uh-huh. Um, like it was, I got in trouble for that. I got in trouble because I found out a way to kind of like send email from any one of the, anybody's account at the school. Like mm-hmm. you could kind of just like go in and change the from address. So I would send like kind of emails from like the, the teachers or like the principal of the school to like the whole school, or all the other <laughs> teachers being like, this thing's canceled. Yes. <laughs> I just caused chaos. And uh-huh. they didn't find out that it was me until like, a week before school was supposed to end. Okay. And I got like called into an office and was just like, guys, uh, like, kind of, I'm really sorry. I didn't realize I was causing so much chaos. And apparently there'd been this big investigation in the background of who's like terrorizing the school wow. and canceling the, the assemblies and, and things like that. But yeah, no, I didn't get in trouble for kind of handing out the, the game so much, but more kind of, again, just trying to like tinker with stuff and see how it works and see if I could do something. You're hacking the school computers at 13 years old. Like <laughs> it sounds, it sounds much cooler than it was, but, but sure. Let, let's go with that for the purposes. Of right. This. Right. That's incredible. Well, so, so you get to the point, like you're, you're little, you're bringing in serious money. Like I think $4 million year over year or something like yeah. that. And, and you don't know what to do with the money. Right. So you, I think somebody Nobody else knew what to do, you know, with your taxes or the money as well. So they told you to create a solution, Christian, like go figure it out yourself. And tell us about that. Yeah, it was sort of like, so there was like two problems. Like one, the business grew really quickly. So it probably, it went from like zero to 4 million over a couple of years, but it probably went from like zero to 1 million in like three months. Wow. So it was like a really, really quick kind of upward trajectory. And what are your parents doing, you know, thinking when you're bringing yeah. in this much money? Well, for the first like three months, they didn't know that I was doing any of this stuff. They just okay. thought I was like still making the websites for people or selling things online. So they knew mm-hmm. I was bringing in some money, but it was like, we're talking maybe like previously I'd make like two grand a year right? versus like kind of, kind of thousands a day. So like there was an awkward moment where I think it was around my birthday. It was like my, I don't know call it like 15th birthday or something. And like my grandparents, I think had given me some birthday money. It was like 50 or hundred or something. And I went to the bank with my, this was back in the days in the UK, back in the day, like I had like a kid's bank account yeah. and you didn't get like statements or anything. You got this little book. Uh-huh. And sort of every time you went into the bank, they would like print another line in the book with like the balance in it. Okay. So I went, I remember going in to like the local bank with my parents to sort of put this like 50 or 100 in, in birthday money in. And they like gave, I gave the little book over and they printed another line in the book. And I remember the balance being like, it was like 97, 130, like 250, and then like 86,000. Um, <laughs> to, which, to which then there was an immediate like hour, two hour conversation with my parents. That uh-huh. I was like, no, I'm not selling drugs. Like I've actually just been like building this invoicing software. I'm nowhere near cool enough to be selling drugs. Like I'm literally building software in my bedroom. Yeah. And that was the thing that was sort of like the catalyst for me having the conversation with them, which was like, this thing seems to be doing okay. Like I don't really enjoy school. Like, would you be okay if I dropped out when I was 16? To which the answer was an immediate no. Uh Um, And I spent like the next like nine months sort of kind of gradually wearing them down 
to the point where like we reached some agreement where it was like okay you can do this but for the second that it either stops working or isn't working anymore or like whatever because we never we didn't know if this was a, a thing that was going to kind of persist then you yeah. go back to school so that was like the agreement that i i made with them and what are your parents do your parents have an entrepreneurial background or they you know have had jobs their whole life so so what was their experience like yeah so both of them just worked normal jobs my my dad later in his life now has sort of become an entrepreneur he decided to like quit his job like maybe inspired a little he tell me tell me inspired a little bit by me but maybe <laughs> not but like kind of five or six years ago decided to quit his job and he's always like enjoyed making like furniture and things and decided to kind of start his own business doing that so yeah that's that's been kind of cool to see but no prior to that like there's not really any or many any that i can really think of like entrepreneurs in my family mm-hmm. everybody's kind of just been normal jobs sort of try and build a career go to school kind of do all this stuff and and retire one day and then you can go on vacation a lot and, and yeah. like that. got it and and so you're 16 i guess in the in the u.s you can drop out at 16 i guess that's the age for the uk as well yeah, yeah. most people continue until they're 18 but kind of 16 is like the legal the legal age at which you can drop out so what happened after you dropped out and you just doubled down on, on work at home and growing a business? Is, is that what? Yeah. 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 I think so. Like for the, for the last probably like year of school, I wasn't paying much attention anyway. Yeah. Um, I was always, it always felt strange to me because it's sort of like you're going into these like classes or whatever it is. And they're talking to you about like, Oh, you have to pay attention in this or you have to do well in this test. Cause like that'll, that's what, the uh when in two years time when you go to get a job like that's the thing that they're going to be looking at and i'm sitting there and i'm like but i don't want to work for kind of somebody else i'm i want to build stuff and i want to build a business and i want to do all this stuff so immediately kind of like as soon as that rhetoric started coming in which i think it probably does around like 15 16 people start talking about okay like are you going to go to college or are you going to get a job or like whatever and you start kind of prepping kids for that when that kind of rhetoric started to come in I think the only thing that I could think about was like, how do I get out of here quicker? Because I know exactly what I want to do. Wow. Incredible. And so you've, you've gone from going to school every day, then your parents are just like, okay, work at home, you know, grow this thing. Yeah. Yeah. I sort of kind of had a little, made a little office in my bedroom, kind of was like roll out of bed into it was very much like COVID, but like a decade earlier. (laughs) So like roll out of bed into the desk chair kind of do a bunch of work, roll back into bed. So sort of did that for like a year, ended up getting a little office sort of in the town that I was in just because I was like, I I don't really want, I'm not, I was like 17, 16, 17. So I was like, I don't necessarily want to move out, but mm-hmm. I don't necessarily want to be in the house all day in like right. sort of a hundred square feet of room. So rented a little office in kind of the town I was in that didn't last very long because I was just there on my own. So it's just like, this is, this is potentially more miserable than just being at home and at least being able to say like, kind of hi to my parents or, or whatever it was. And it did that for a little bit. And then the business was growing. We had a couple of people who worked in the business, but they were kind of located kind of all throughout the UK and, and Europe. They were just kind of hired remotely that I'd met online. And then that's sort of the time at which as the business started to grow and we sort of hit like three-ish million dollars, that's when all of these pains around kind of like taxes and payments and all of this stuff started to happen. Right. Um, and they were sort of like multifaceted. It was like, obviously there's like an individual tax situation in that, in the sort of like, as you could probably hear from the other part of the story, like initially for like the first year, it wasn't even incorporated. It was going to my kid's savings bank account. So like there was like a bit of cleanup to do to get it in, in check. But then the other part of this business, which was interesting was it was for, it was a, probably at this time it was like a two and a half, $3 million business. And we'd incorporated and we'd done all that stuff. But this was invoicing software for like individuals and freelancers. Right. So it was like average price point was somewhere between 80 and 120 bucks a year. Yeah. So it was like tens of thousands of people kind of buying relatively low priced product from us. Yeah. And sort of they were everywhere, like in a hundred different countries, sort of all this stuff. So we were having to deal with all of these challenges of like, oh, how do you take payments from all these people? Mm-hmm. And then suddenly we get like a letter from some government of some place that you never even heard of being like, oh, you owe us sales tax. 
I was like, wait, is they charge sales tax there? <laughs> um, so there was like all of these things and it, and it became, it got to a point where we were like, sort of we were firefighting like all of these just like operational things to do with the business, whether it's payments or taxes or we get hit by fraud in a certain like kind of region or whatever, or, or any one of these things. And we were spending more time on like just firefighting those things and just trying to build the infrastructure to be able to sell the product than we were actually working on the product anymore. Yeah. So that was kind of the, the moment where something flicked and I was like, ah, wait, I need to do something about this. So even you as a teenager, were you distraught by, you know, governments telling you, hey, you owe us money or you oh, yeah. fraud? Okay. So like, how was that affecting you as a teenager? Were you, you know, going to your parents for, you know, emotional support or you're just like, you know, so focused on the no, business, you had the blinders I, on, you're going and going and blinders on. I was very much kind of just like laser focused on kind of building the thing, which like sort of the only advice that I had was Google. Like I would just Google a thing <laughs> and then like, Dr. usually, Google then Go- thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They usually then Google translate the thing because it was sort of, it was like kind of in Dutch or something. Cause I owed sort of like taxes in the Netherlands or whatever it is. And then I would kind of figure it out. And then a little bit later, I, I found like a good accountant who kind of like helped with, with some of this stuff. But kind of that was really the, the impetus for, for starting Paddle was kind of one of the ways that we'd grown that business is we've done a lot of like partnerships. Yeah. We've done a lot of like co- co-marketing and, and, and things like that. So I, for a 15, 16 year old, I kind of knew quite a lot of people who were building kind of software companies because we've done some sort of like co-marketing or something with them. Yeah. So I think like one evening in a moment of frustration, I sort of like sent everybody that I'd done any sort of like deal with an email, which was just like, I'm having this problem, sort of like all of this infrastructure sucks. I'm getting these tax letters from different places and I can't collect payments in this country and like all of this stuff. And what do you use? So I was sort of going through all of that and, and trying to kind of, I composed like a really long email. I sent it to like 30 people. And it was probably the first time I realized that sort of like, if you can get somebody talking about something they hate, they will talk forever about it way okay. more than if it's something that they love. <laughs> and I got these, I got these like emails back that were like 11 paragraphs long from people who were running similar size, sort of like five, 10, 15 person businesses who were sort of like, yeah, this sucks. Like we have the same problem. We're either using a dozen different things that we've kind of like cobbled together, something for payments, something for foreign exchange, something for fraud, something for taxes, or the other kind of alternative was these are all software companies. So the default in these businesses is, oh, we'll just go build a solution to our problem. Mm-hmm. And then they build the solution to the problem that they have right now. And then six months time, it no longer works for kind of whatever kind of stage of the business that they're at then. And that was my goal with the email when I sent it to people wasn't like, oh, I want to go and build this thing. It was like, please, someone tell me the thing that I need to go and buy to just make all of this be over. And that thing didn't exist. And, and then that was sort of the impetus to, to start the business. One thing you mentioned that I've noticed in this this series where we're you know interviewing people that have hit billion dollars in their company is that they have a unique ability to put the like a natural ability to put the blinders on for all other things that or shiny objects that are are out there. And for so many of us entrepreneurs, myself included, sometimes we struggle for years about, you know, jumping into a new business opportunity or spending three years in a business and then moving and shifting directions here and there. What do you think it is about you, Christian, that gives you the ability to put those blinders on and just focus so intently on on one Ooh. business? So I, I, I loved, used to love a side project. Like okay. kind of, I'd kind of come up with an idea or spot an opportunity or like whatever it was. And I just immediately go and like, like evenings and weekends, I go build the thing. And for me, I think it was a combination of of things that like made me focus. Like one was when we were building the invoicing thing, which kind of started as a side project because I was building it for myself. Like when I was building that, there was a thing in me like the whole time where I was like, I'm this is never going to be QuickBooks. Like this is never going to be a really big business. Like it can be a really nice business. But I've always been incredibly ambitious. I've always wanted to build a really big business. So there was a kind of piece in me about that, that sort of I was kind of something deep down where I was like, this is never going to be the thing. It might be a thing, but it's not going to be the thing. 
Mm. And then sort of I kept kind of iterating through side projects and sort of felt the same way about all of them. I was like, all of these side projects and things sound like a really great way to sort of like a really great business idea or a thing that can be sort of a, a nice business. Or if I was in different circumstances, it could be a great like little lifestyle thing where I'd work kind of a couple of days a week on it and it would be great. But then I think probably a, sort of five, six, seven years ago, I was kind of sitting there and I was like, and I was still doing some of these things. And I was kind of like, there was, it's a strange trade-off in time that I'm making, even though these things are like exciting. It's a strange trade-off in time that I'm making, which is I could spend like a weekend or an evenings or sort of like kind of take a day here and there and build this thing. And with perfect execution, it could be like a, a $5 million business or a $10 million business. And that sounds great until you realize that like I could spend that same amount of time and sort of the business that I like primary business paddle, like could be a tens of billions of dollar business. Mm -hmm. And then kind of when I really kind of had that realization, suddenly the, the side projects sort of, and the business ideas and things like that, while still exciting, like became sort of much less meaningful to me than realizing I could focus all of my energy on one thing and hopefully kind of have a much bigger outsized kind of outcome. I also definitely think I'm the type of person that sort of one day in kind of many decades time when sort of paddles gone public and kind of maybe I step back, I will definitely be sort of side project guy again. I will <laughs> probably start dozens of things and none of them will work, but I'll kind of get it all out of my system then. Yeah. Was there a, a realization, a moment when you really realized that paddle was something that could get that big? Or did you know that from the very beginning because you didn't see anything else out there that was serving these these companies? I knew initially when we were first building it that it could be big, but within a really narrow set of people. Okay. Um, so I thought my initial thesis was, yes, this thing needs to exist to help people sell software. But I thought the people that it was going to help sell software were people who looked like me. It was like one, two, five people kind of building a small business. Because my assumption was having never like worked in a bigger business was, oh, as soon as you get like 25, 50 people, whatever, like as soon as you have five, 10, 20 million dollars of revenue, you have enough resources to just be able to do this stuff yourself. So like for the first couple of years, it was building for those like indie small businesses, kind of kind of tiny people just starting out mm -hmm. who didn't want to do this stuff. And then the big realization probably happened two or three years in where I was like, oh crap, like we've signed some customers who when we signed them, they were two people and now they're 20 people. Right. And sort of like uh, two years later, it was, oh, some of those people who are 20 people and have 200 people. Like, and these businesses grow and they compound. And this thing of like, how do I deal with payments and taxes and operations and sort of all this stuff is still like the lowest possible thing on their priority list, the things that they actually want to do, unless it breaks, in which case it becomes the number one priority, which also sort of is why it kind of it, it's a valuable kind of space to be in. But it probably, I knew that the business could be successful. It wasn't until I realized that some of these small businesses actually ended up being really big businesses that kind of it kind of clicked for me that that we could do this for sort of every software company in the world. Gotcha. Okay. So you're you're 16. You started Paddle. Did you? What were the first steps to start acquiring customers in those early days, especially as such a young guy? And then were, was there? I, I'm guessing there's some overlap from the previous business that came into Paddle as well. Yeah. So sort of time frame is sort of like kept running that business. I was so like 17, 17 and a half, like really hit breaking point with like all of this infrastructure stuff. Mm -hmm. Hired somebody to run that business. So I could, cause it kind of like, for me, it was like, this is a big problem. I need to focus on it. Started building the first version of paddle and really the, the, the first set of customers were essentially those like 20 people that I cold emailed sort of who I kind of worked with in the previous company in kind of partnership stuff and things like that. So other software companies and things like that. And the first iteration of Paddle, like we knew the problem that we wanted to solve, which was how do we make it easier for people to sell software? But our execution of the first version of that was terrible. Like we thought the thing that we should build was like another marketplace. It was like, mm -hmm. oh, let's build like Amazon or iTunes or whatever for these sort of like more robust sort of like B2B software purchases. 
So we built all of the underlying infrastructure that you need to sell software, like payments, taxes, like all of that stuff, and then spent probably like another four or five months building like a consumer marketplace on top with like search and reviews and product detail pages and sort of all of this stuff. And like with that positioning, it was actually really, really easy to get these software companies to sign up, but for absolutely the wrong reason. Like they all signed up thinking, oh, this is another like customer acquisition channel for me, Mm -hmm. like a marketplace, I'll get customers from this. So actually the first probably like 50 to 100 businesses were super easy to sign up. None of them used it. Like none of them made any money because we didn't have like the, the demand side of a marketplace in order to do this. And then a couple of those customers were so frustrated with whatever other kind of way of billing customers and things that they were using that they sort of became exclusive to this marketplace. Like they turned off all of their other sales channels mm. and they started directing customers from their website, like straight to the checkout page and, and things like that. And that was sort of the moment where we kind of realized we're like, oh, like we got that like the thesis was correct. The execution was completely wrong. Like people want like the guts of a marketplace. They don't want all of these sort of like consumer facing kind of elements to it. They just want all of the infrastructure behind it. So very quickly after that, we, we shut down the consumer side of the marketplace, sort of pivoted, if you like, to kind of just providing kind of infrastructure behind it and all of the kind of ancillary services, and then sort of started growing kind of the business from there. And the process to acquire kind of the first handful of businesses to use it outside of the maybe half a dozen at this point that were that were kind of using it from kind of the, the people that we knew in the previous business mm-hmm. were essentially it was all cold outreach. It was all like, and it was most, it was initially to products where I used the product, like I was a customer of the thing and I'd buy it and sort of then I'd email them and I'd be like, I just went through this process to buy it. It doesn't necessarily look like you guys, it looks like you guys are using something homegrown or kind of in-house. Is it a pain? If so, would love to chat. And pretty much probably for the first like two plus years, three years of the business, that was the only way that we, we got customers was just reaching out to people. Nice. I'm going to ask kind of a thought-provoking question, Christian. If you could break, so I think Paddle's about 12 years old now. Is that correct? 10. 10. 10. If you could break the 10 years up of Paddle into chapters, what would be the title of each chapter? And mm-hmm. then and then we'll kind of work through each chapter asking questions about your most important priorities and, and role in each of those chapters. Yeah. So I'd say... I'd say thus far, there's probably four chapters. The first chapter, not very good with titles, but the first chapter was probably called, this sounds like a good idea. Um, And (laughs) it was like really that kind of like tinkering, like experimentation, build a marketplace, kind of try and create something from nothing phase. Like we had an idea of like the problem that we wanted to solve. We didn't necessarily know how to solve it kind of like all of those like discovery pieces. And I think kind of my role in that first chapter, it was probably the first like, call it two years in the business, year and a half, two years. My role in that was sort of really just everything. Like Mm -hmm. I was building the thing, I was talking to people, my co-founder Harrison was also kind of like, kind of trying to sell people on it, but we were kind of doing a bit of everything, just trying to make it work. Chapter two is probably called Don't Die. (laughs) Uh, and it's probably year two to like year five and so like that kind of like two three year period and that was like post that pivot it was we we kind of we'd align on a thing that was kind of working and then it was like how do we scale and it's sort of like how do you scale outreach how do you scale marketing how do you scale the product how do you scale all of these things and it kind of like i was thinking about this recently and i think that there's and this sort of goes into sort of like whatever the third chapter would be. But like, I think there's a moment, or there was certainly a moment for me in this business, and you can roughly split it right down the middle in terms of like the first five years and then the next five years. The first five years of the business, so it was very much that like tinkering, experimentation, figure it out, and then a big old phase of like, don't die. And then somewhere at like the five, six year mark, it became quite obvious that like this thing wasn't going to die. Like we built a business that worked mm-hmm. and like all of my like fears went from being the fear of this thing imploding to the fear of us not necessarily being able to realize its full potential. Right. It's like, it went from like, Oh, this thing's going to run out of money or this thing's going to die or like whatever to like, Oh crap, we have this such a huge opportunity. How do we make sure that we play all the cards perfectly right? 
to make sure that we can be the way that every software company in the world sort of builds and runs kind of their business on. So sort of kind of like chapter three was definitely like kind of it's probably the least sexy title, but like build the foundations to maximize the opportunity. Okay. When that was like kind of like this was probably like four-ish years ago, three, four years ago, started getting really serious about like, okay, how do we build infrastructure? How do we build a really great exec team? Like, how do I have these people around me who have scaled businesses before, hired the first VP of sales, hired the first VP of customer success, hired the first like VP of marketing, like all of those things It became like, oh, how do we actually build the, like we built a nice business. How do we build a great company? And then that probably, and then my role in that was sort of like chief recruiter. Like, like you spend a lot of time, or I spent a lot of time thinking about like, how do we design the org? How do we hire the best possible people? How does sort of this little company with big opportunities sort of kind of actually portray those to people in a way that they might want to come and spend a good chunk of their careers, like working on this as a problem. And that was probably up until maybe two months ago. And okay. I think two months ago, we probably entered chapter four. And chapter four is, is sort of like, I don't know what it's called yet. I'll probably tell you the title <laughs> in like a year's time, depending on the ending. But like a couple of months ago, we raised sort of $200 million. We acquired a business called ProfitWell. And with it, we acquired another 100 people. So we're like nearly 400 people total. Mm-hmm. And like this phase of, of the journey is really like, we had to make a very deliberate decision when we did that acquisition which was sort of kind of paddle builds, recurrent billing, payments, tax, sort of infrastructure. ProfitWell builds like the number one subscription analytics sort of retention product for subscription and software companies. But sort of the big elephant in the room when we did that acquisition was, look, like this thing is used by 30,000 companies, certainly track nearly $30 billion worth of revenue through it. We had to make a very, but like the thing that it integrates with is, basically a ton of our competitors right so we had to make a very deliberate decision of like is that an acquisition where you come in you buy it you shut down the integrations with all of our competitors and then sort of like you have this sort of like moat around the business Mm -hmm. where like we would build the best possible product that couldn't that nobody could even touch like that's option one and that option would be like like we're never going to win every company in the world so maybe in a few years time we are 15,000 customers, but we power every aspect of their business. Mm -hmm. Or the alternative after doing that acquisition was like, okay, we're going to keep it open. We're going to integrate with all of these competitors. And instead of taking the approach of like, if you use Paddle, you have to use every possible facet of what we do. Like, do we want to be a thing where hundreds of thousands of companies use some product that we we provide, as opposed to 10,000 companies using every product that we provide? And we chose the some companies, some some or hundreds of thousands of businesses using some parts of what we do and kind of really kind of changed our like philosophy of how we run the business in the last sort of like two or three months. And I think that that was one born out of like us trying to build a ton of longevity into sort of the business and trying to be the most helpful possible brand in in software that we can possibly be by building really great products to help people run their business. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of like the start of the next chapter is sort of what we've just done. Take me through the the thought process of deciding to be a company um, that had a few products or a handful of products for hundreds of thousands of people versus all products for 10,000. Because I go I go back and forth, you know, a lot of people talk about serving few fewer clients and having charging more, right? Uh, which often leads to less stress, less confusion, easier business models. And you chose kind of the opposite. I was just Curious about the decision-making process through that. I think the decision-making process was probably one of like, what impact do we want to have like okay. medium, medium to long-term in a couple of ways. Like one, doing, doing the larger set, being something to hundreds of thousands of businesses as opposed to everything to 10,000. Like if you do the everything to 10,000, like it almost precludes your ability to be something to hundreds of thousands. Whereas doing the something to hundreds of thousands doesn't preclude your ability to be everything to 10,000 of those. Okay. So part, partially, like if you, if you could take a cynical view of it, it's, a, it's like you can think of that as a bit of a hedge. But two, I think that for us, like 
the the biggest belief that we have is is sort of the verticalization of a lot of these kind of like software products that are being created in different industries. Mm-hmm. So like the commerce product or the payments product, or the tax product that we build, like we're only ever going to build it for SaaS and software companies. And sort of if you're a telecoms company or a video conferencing tool or something else, like there might be a better solution for you out there that like very explicitly solves all of the different needs that you have within that vertical, because the needs that you have is, for example, like an insurance company that happens to have recurring revenue, a different to that you might have as a software company who also has recurring revenue. So our approach of like, of this was like, we want to be hyper-specific in the products that we build to be applicable to a certain vertical of companies. So today, Paddle's like payments and call product is very, very explicitly specific to SaaS and software businesses. And of all, but the the ProfitWell product, the metrics product is really applicable to anybody who runs any type of subscription business, regardless mm-hmm. of if it's software or SaaS or anything else. So for those customers, like we don't necessarily want to put them in a position where we're forcing them to use something like Paddle, which probably isn't the right product for them if they're not running a SaaS business. Right. But it actually enables us to continue working with them on certain aspects of their business while maybe they use a better underlying billing provider or a billing provider that's better for their specific industry or specific kind of niche of their business. So that was kind of the ultimate sort of like reason that we chose was we think that there's, we can build really an ecosystem of really incredible products for everybody who builds subscription businesses and then really go deep on the ones where we have genuine real expertise around how to run those businesses like with commerce and payments and things for for specifically SaaS companies. Got it. That makes sense. I've got uh, uh, one more question, and I think somebody in the audience, or we'll open it up to questions from the audience real quick. But you you recommend or gives you've given some examples of why a company should you say walk from zero to a million so you can sprint from one to ten million. And they say you know everybody says the first million is always the hardest. The second million is is usually much easier. What's your philosophy behind that? I think that our process of, of the first, like that, that kind of like discovery phase, chapter one, our process of that was always like sprint towards sort of like growth, sprint okay. towards a million, kind of do as much as we possibly can. And it kind of occurs to me like that that first like two, two and a half year period of, of trying to build that, we so many false starts. Like we had a marketplace that didn't quite work. And then we kind of like, we, we didn't kind of scrap everything, but we kind of deleted a bunch of it. And we started again and it, we could have probably halved the amount of time that it took us mm-hmm. to go from like zero to a million by actually just spending more time, like talking to people, like doing more like customer discovery. Like we would have probably by doing 10 calls, we would have found out that it actually wasn't a marketplace people wanted. It was sort of this underlying infrastructure. So there are all of these things where like sort of, I don't know whether it was like naivety or arrogance or some combination of the two where we thought we had all of the answers to what every customer in the world wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, and we thought we were building the right thing and we were running really hard at it, really fast at it um, in a bunch of different ways. But actually at the end of the day, like the thing that would have sped us up was to slow down slow down, build the right thing the first time. And it was the same approach to when we we started acquiring customers was we managed very early to acquire a very big customer. And we went from doing like a thousand dollars a month in revenue to like $60,000 a month in revenue, like Mm -hmm. really quickly. So we had a customer that was paying us like over half a million dollars a year to use paddle and they used the product for like two months and then they churned. So we went from like zero to almost a million to back to like 50 grand a year to like a hundred and then very gradually <laughs> and built up to a million. But like the whole reason like that, that happened, like it wasn't because we were bad at selling it or we were bad at giving support or any of this stuff. It's cause we weren't listening. It's cause mm-hmm. we were again, like we'd sold the thing. We were building what we thought was the right solution. We weren't listening to people. And then two and a half, three months in, they were like, look, you guys, you're not, you said that you were going to solve all our problems. You're not solving all of our problems. We're going to go somewhere else. Yeah. So I think like that would be my biggest sort of thing. If I could do anything differently across the last 10 years, it would probably be for the first two years, certainly the first like three to six months, 
it would just be like slow down, like kind of yeah. like no one's built no one's built this thing for the last twenty years. No one's going to build it in the next three months and kind of take it away from you because that was like always the fear. It's like oh, someone's going to come and build it and we're not going to have a business. And today we have hundreds of competitors and we still have a business. So actually, just taking a breath and like making sure we're building the right thing and we're listening to customers and doing all that stuff, we would probably have we might be a like we might be. Fifty percent bigger than we are today, because all of that stuff compounds. That makes sense. We have Austin on the line who has a question. There he is, Austin. Feel free to do a quick intro of yourself and uh, ask the question you have. Hey, Chris. Hey, Christian. Congratulations hey. on uh, acquiring ProfitWell. Uh, my name is Austin Distel. I'm head of marketing at Jasper. I'm so curious. What is the background story of you and Patrick getting together? What was that interaction like? And then saying, how are we going to work together and maybe uh, get acquired? And I'm really curious for the background story of that. Yeah. So I have known Patrick for five, six years. I was first probably like five or six years ago on his podcast where he came and interviewed me for something. And then after that, sort of we kind of knew each other. And then we would see each other like three or four times a year at conferences. So like we call ourselves conference friends. And we'd sort of like every time we were like at Saster or SaaStock or like one of these sort of SaaS conferences, usually we would end up spending kind of probably a disproportionate amount of time with each other. And then we kind of kept in touch and sort of we would we'd keep talking. And the thing that we sort of really kind of aligned on as sort of like two people, the, the, the reason that we became friends was like we, we kind of had this shared thesis about kind of the future of software. It sounds very, it sounds very grand. It wasn't quite as grand. It's sort of like, and the thesis is that like V1 of software were products like Salesforce. Like you, sort of the person who you were buying Salesforce for wasn't the person building the product. It was like the VP of sales. Like no sales rep in the world has ever enjoyed using Salesforce, but the, the VP of sales loves the reports and things. And then V2 of software was very much this like kind of idea of like kind of do it yourself. It was how do we build products that integrate with everything and WYSIWYG editors and drag and drop and sort of things like Zapier and, and stuff like that way kind of you can take two kind of disparate things and bring them together and have and you can build a lot of stuff yourself in order to get these things to work. And then the thing that we really aligned over is like what's V3 of that? And the thing that that sort of the way that we independently of each other, like not speaking about this and built our businesses was really around what we thought V3 was, which is do it for you. So it's sort of like, I want to buy a product that it, it doesn't give me the tools to better solve the problem myself. It just solves the problem for me. So like, if you look at like a bunch of the products that we compete with on a tax, tax software, like, and things like that, like, they provide you with a bunch of different things and you put in like loads of data and it does calculations and it tells you like where you owe taxes and sort of like who you should charge and what the threshold is and then points you to like the the state website in order to kind of like go and download the forms. And like, that's great, but that's like the V2 way of doing tax software. The V3 way of doing tax software is we're going to collect all of the money. We're going to file the taxes for you. We're going to remit the money. And if we get it wrong, like we are going to be on the hook for the taxes. So like we both very much aligned around like this sort of like do it for you way of, of building a company, us around the operational stuff and them around the growth pieces. So products like retain is like do it for you retention. It's like, how do we win you a customer back that was canceling or kind of their payment was failing? How do we get that customer back using the product? And we're going to do it for you and you're not going to have any kind of intervention over that process. So we aligned around those things. And then in probably... It was sort of September, October time last year. I was talking to Patrick and sort of he was talking about like their business had been growing a ton and they were thinking about in 2022 going out and raising money. They'd been a bootstrap business for nearly 10 years and they were thinking about going out and raising money. And I then kind of like took that away. And I was like, initially I was like, oh, who can I introduce Patrick to who might be a good investor? And then the more I thought about it, I then flew to Boston and I sat Patrick and, and Facundo, the, the other found one of the other founders in a room. And I was like, look, I know you guys want to raise money, but like, we're trying to solve very similar problems and we philosophically feel the same way about solving them. Why don't we just do it as one company to which they immediately said no. And <laughs> like told me to go away. No, they were very nice, but they did not want to sell the business. 
And then over probably a couple of months of like really kind of talking about it and then doing exactly what you said of like, like was, we spent most of the time talking about like what the future could look like, what we wanted to build together. Because the, the most interesting part of that as an acquisition was neither Patrick nor Facundo nor Peter, the three founders, none of them, even though they've been doing it for a decade, like they didn't feel like they were done. They were like, we still have a ton of problems left to solve that we still really enjoy building this business. So the biggest thing for them was, was like, how do we have like meaningful roles and a meaningful part of what we're going to build together as opposed to like, you're going to pay us a bunch of money and we're going to sit there for three months and then leave. So that was, that was kind of like the biggest piece. Interestingly, we actually filmed the whole thing. So we, we filmed like the whole process and we created a documentary of like trying to buy a company. And it was like thousands of hours of footage that they've cut down to like 30 minutes and we'll be doing a bunch of like supplementary stuff. So you can go to like we sign tomorrow.com, um, which is the name of the documentary. Uh, if you want to kind of watch that, it should be, we should be releasing it in like this week. So cool. What a great story. And, and I've been loving seeing the interaction on Twitter between everybody in the community about this acquisition. There's a lot of excitement there. And I'm curious, sometimes when acquisitions happen, one company stops development. Some teams will lose morale. And so what are you seeing as a way to negate that, you know, positioning that might happen? And so, you know, you guys have a great product together and you keep leadership on board, you keep morale up. Yeah, I think, the, I think one of the interesting things about this was this wasn't like a, this wasn't two companies who do a similar thing to each other being acquired. Like it wasn't like there is, there's little, we were actually very surprised when we actually brought, we did all the stuff, we brought these things together and then we're kind of like working on the integration of these two businesses. Like there is so little overlap between the two businesses, both in terms of product set, but also in terms of people. The product set stuff was, was sort of fairly obvious and like strategic and like one of the reasons why we wanted to do the deal. So it meant that we could kind of like independently and together keep investing in these two things to make them both greater, but then also the combination of which even greater still. But the, the, the pleasant surprise that we had kind of as we were doing diligence was sort of really all of Paddle's areas of weakness were a profit well area of strength. And all of the profit well areas of weakness were like a Paddle area of strength. So profit well had been a bootstrap business. So they didn't have a ton of these like operational run the business functions in there because they'd never been like an investor or somebody telling them to go and do these things. So suddenly it was like super easy to take all of the like the finance and the people and the recruiting and stuff like that and just like, absorb those into kind of like paddles team because like that's something that we've really thought about and really built out over the years equally sort of kind of profit was really great at marketing and doing content and things like that but didn't have a cmo whereas paddle did have a cmo and they sort of was really great at like paid acquisition and demand gen but sort of wasn't so great on the kind of like visual content side of things we could do written content but we couldn't do like visual content so like all of these like puzzle pieces fit together quite nicely in terms of like the, the nuts and bolts of like morale and things like that, I think the biggest things were really just sort of like thinking about all of these decisions as like people first of like, how does this thing that we want to do impact a team or how do we do this sort of like cognizantly you know, for the people who are involved in mind and then just over communicating everything. It's become a, like a little bit of a joke internally about like in the, in the period between when we announced the companies we were doing the, the acquisition to when sort of we actually publicly announced it, we did like an all hands AMA, like every 48 hours, like with every part. And we like let everybody hear the answers to every question, no matter how tough the question was, we'd answer it in front of the whole company. And I think that gave us sort of a lot of credit with people that we were kind of bringing so much transparency to the process. And sort of the fact that that combined with that there wasn't a ton of overlap in these businesses. I think meant that we were able to like one, keep people very engaged and involved in this process, but two, like everybody felt like they had a place. Everybody felt like the, like the day after the acquisition, they still had something to do. Like they still like the goals remained the same. If not, the goals just got bigger. Thanks for that insight, Christian. Looking forward to seeing what you and ProfitWall do together. And it's a very exciting future. Cool. Thanks, Austin. Thanks, Austin. Kristen, I know you have, we'll just do a couple more things and we'll wrap things up, but I know you have some suggestions uh, for the SaaS founders out there on key things that you see that they can do to grow their companies in 2022. 
Yeah, I think there's a there's a handful of things. I'm thinking about this like quite a bit. Obviously, like all of these things are a little bit strange. Like going into an environment where kind of we don't know what the next twelve, eighteen months are going to look like in terms of valuations are compressed, sort of inflation's kind of running. We've got like a difficult environment to raise money in, sort of all of these different things. But I think that there are a handful of 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 things that always remain true. I think that like now is a perfect time to sort of like really index on that thing that we didn't do in the the kind of early days, which is talk to your customers. Mm-hmm. Like kind of the a lot of the time, and it's interesting because we do it as well, and then we have to kind of like check ourselves. But a lot of the time, like we spend, we like speculate about what our customers are going to do. We're like, what if this happens, or is churn going to go up, or is is sort of like, are we going to struggle to hit bookings for next quarter or whatever it is? And actually, you realize that all of these problems are solved by just having a fairly open, direct, like honest conversation with the customer. Um, and they'll tell you exactly, even if they don't know, they'll tell you exactly what's going on their side of things. But we we spend a lot of time, I think, as founders and exec teams, like speculating about what this group of people who we can just go and talk to are thinking about doing. So I think that as a baseline. I think the other thing that's interesting is there was a bunch of sort of like hangover from COVID. Obviously, during COVID, everything went remote, everything's on Zoom, sort of all that stuff. But I think the one big hangover from COVID is how much more international everything is. Um, yeah. And bis- businesses who were thinking kind of almost like geo by geo or kind of domestically first, like they're at a substantial disadvantage to the business who can kind of go and pretty much sell to anyone anywhere. Like it used to be that a block of this stuff was sort of like speaking the language, but actually realistically, if you're selling in most parts of Europe or the U S or Canada or wherever, like kind of even South America, like people are conducting these buying and selling processes in English and they're doing them remotely and they're doing them on zoom. So the biggest thing that we've seen in companies that are like really kind of bucking the trend at the moment, and there is a trend in of like high churn, sort of like slowing growth, certainly in consumer SaaS and, and things like that at the moment, the ones that are bucking the trend tend to be the ones who are kind of geography agnostic in terms of how they're thinking about growing the business. Mm. They're doing really simple stuff like they're optimizing for making that buying process as easy as possible, supporting different currencies. They are kind of, they're letting their sales reps sort of kind of bleed out of what was a traditional like geography because suddenly, like, it's really difficult to identify where a company is anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, they might be ha- headquartered in California, but sort of you reach out to the person and they're working remotely in Amsterdam. Like, it, and it's sort of like, so there's all of these different facets. And I would say, like, the biggest thing that companies can be doing to kind of be bucking that trend is not adding artificial barriers to their growth that are kind of somewhat obsolete now like the idea of kind of geographic boundaries to sales processes people who can use your product unless there's a genuine like compliance reason that they can't i think that the companies who are really doing well are the ones who have really just lent into and embraced like that whole world and are focusing very internationally and and realizing that that kind of that these market dynamics are they're partially cyclical but they're also partially geographic so like if there is a, uh, I mean, this one is a little bit more global, but sort of like, like we're noticing like buying decisions still being much faster in Europe than they are in the US, whereas usually it's reversed. And, it, and maybe it's because I don't want to speculate to the reason, but maybe it's because sort of like kind of consumer confidence indexes and things like that in the US. So it's sort of like really at a low right now. Yeah. And people are a bit scared and they're, they don't really know what's going on. And people are going through planning cycles where they're thinking about like, okay, what does our budget look like for the rest of the year? And the company that thought they were going to be able to raise money no longer are. So I think kind of being able to kind of redirect and, and sort of uh, and kind of target companies in, in, in different countries is probably the big number one thing that people can do with relatively little kind of investment. Like it doesn't really require much to say to a, a sales rep. Oh, you can now target Canada, or you can now target the UK or Germany or whatever. Makes sense. I always like to to talk to the guests on the show, kind of about their their habits, their routines, their daily structure, because we interview a lot of high performers on the podcast as well. I think anybody that's uh, built a company as successful as you qualifies as a high performer as well. So, what you know, and I know you're you're, you're busy, you're traveling a lot, your day to day 
is, is probably very different depending on whatever's going on in your life. Do you keep any, what's the structure in your life like? Do you keep any regular daily habits or rituals, any times of the day that you prefer to work, times of the day that you prefer to sleep, diets, exercise, miscellaneous things like this? I try and I try and get up every day at roughly the same time. So sort of like seven-ish in the morning. I think it's kind of difficult with travel, but I still try and just sort of do it as, as militantly as I can. I'm definitely a, a like nighttime work person. I'm much pro- I'm so much more productive kind of in the evenings or at night. But sort of over the years, I've sort of had to force myself to be better in the mornings because otherwise I just can't get anything done. Because okay. sort of everybody wants to do everything during the day and I want to do everything at night. So uh, for me, that's been the big thing. I think the biggest, this may be counterintuitive, but the biggest like energy hack that I've had in the last sort of couple of years is just stop eating breakfast. I don't eat breakfast. It's great. I feel much better for it. No caffeine after like 3 p.m. Like kind of I did that the, the simple well, yeah. stuff. Yeah. And then sort of, I think I probably have been just like exhausted, kind of underslept for like the past like seven years. Um, and interestingly, interestingly, like I tried to get like really deliberate about like optimizing sleep kind of probably like three or four months ago. And I bought a, an eight sleep, you know, the, like the, the like mattress thing. Oh yeah. And like tracks your sleep kind of controls temperature and things like that. And now I'm just like, it's great. But like the thing, the main thing that it's done, I do definitely get a better night's sleep because of it. But the main thing that's done, it's like, I'm now conscious and like you could do this through like an aura, like ring or a whoop or like something like that. But I'm now conscious when I had a good or a bad night's sleep. Yeah. And like, I'm, I'm actually thinking about it, like in terms of like, oh, I slept for this much time or I woke up these many times during the night and I'm conscious about it. And I think like subconsciously, I'm sort of making these like micro changes to, oh, I'm maybe not going to have coffee as late as I did, or yeah. I'm going to kind of go for a walk in the evening instead because I slept much better when I did that. So I've been trying to just be more conscious about those things and, and sort of, I think that's kind of compounding as I make kind of lots of little like micro adjustments to kind of to sleep better. But I would say that of all of the things, kind of getting better sleep has probably helped more than anything else in terms of building a company. How long have you been using the sleep the, the sleep aid mattress? Probably three months, four months. What's the name of that one? Do you have it off the top of your head? It's called eight 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 sleep. Like number eight or AID? Number eight. Number eight. Number sleep. eight. Okay. And then sleep. Yeah, I was actually thinking about getting one of those, but the, at the same time, I don't know how I feel about being connected to like electricity while I sleep. You know, is that over the long term actually affecting my sleep? So I had a whoop band. Yeah. I used it for about nine months and I actually got tired of sleeping with that as well. I did like the, the having the metrics there, but over time, yeah. I, was... I find the metrics, the metrics just sort of like con- make me consciously think about sleep as opposed to previously. Mm. It was very much like, a, oh, I had a bad night's sleep or I had a good night's sleep or yeah. whatever. Like yeah. actually looking at it and being like, oh, I actually like, I felt it like, I feel like shit. And like, this is why. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, good, man. I think that's a good wrap for a great podcast. I really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing all your, your wisdom with us about building paddle exciting things that you're up to and it's fascinating i i'm actually big into like neuroscience and brain optimization i do brain scans on entrepreneurs and i love scanning people's brains like yourself where i can see what's going on in there and where the connections are and the disconnect is and what makes you do what you do and then uh, i usually end up getting a, a bit of brain envy afterwards too because some people have some pretty impressive brains i'm sure yours would be great but if i ever pop up to london like uh, i'm in Barcelona now. I'm happy to give you a free brain scan. But um, yeah, anything you would like to leave the listeners with before we wrap up? Any any tips, thoughts, insights? You know, little drips of wisdom. Feel free to to go. Uh, I see the main thing is just try and get a good night's sleep. Like, <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> that is that has been that has been probably the number one thing. Um, yeah. But no, if any if anybody kind of wants to just dive deeper on any of these things, like. Kind of feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. I'm just like Christian B. Owens or my email is just Christian at Paddle.com. Cool. Any ideas for the next billion dollar unicorn after Paddle? No idea. I'm going to build this one into something kind of orders of magnitude bigger than it is today. And then we'll see what happens. Sounds good, man. Well, again, Christian, thank you so much for coming on the show and leaving us with all of your insight and wisdom. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Cool. Thanks, Chris. 
And listeners, we're going to wrap up there. Thank you guys for tuning in once again, and we'll see you on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. Hey, listeners, thanks for joining us. And once again, we wanted to remind you about our adventures and trips for entrepreneurs in our private community. If you enjoy luxury trips to the Caribbean, going on bucket list adventures around the world, or just traveling to connect with other established entrepreneurs, then be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to stay connected at thebusinessmethod.com. That's thebusinessmethod.com. Thanks for joining the show today, and we'll see you on the next episode.